Welcome to Audiophile from Nature. Audiophile is our new series bringing you stories about acoustic science. I'm Kerry Smith. And this episode, what is it like to be a bat? To say that Fiona Gamerson likes bats might be an understatement. The loft of her house in Durham, in the north of England, is full of them. It's a lovely room. This is the original 1720s beams in here. But this is Bernvart. He's quite large. But is he not wonderful? Bernvart is in fact a cuddly toy bat with a four-foot wingspan. And every Halloween I bring him down and I sometimes take him for a walk if just I feel a bit naughty. <laughs> the real Bernvart was a medieval abbot and scholar. Fiona studied history at university. Bernvart the cuddly bat is joined in the attic by several other notables. But there's, look, if you look back towards the door, on mm. the left of the door there's a big, uh, there's a big black one hanging up just the left of the door. Mm. He's called Macbeth because he came from Edinburgh. <laughs> How many do you think there are? I think I've got 27, I think. I, th- I think. Fiona's always had an affinity with bats, right back into her childhood. Sometimes she even acts a bit like one. I just grew up doing it and I didn't know anyone else did it. It's nothing too noticeable, no hanging upside down or being nocturnal. It's that Fiona can echolocate. I do the... But I tend to do it quite quietly. Bats get around by producing a stream of very high-pitched clicks and listening for the echoes that bounce back from the world. And sometimes Fiona does that too. I called it my bat sense. (laughs) Um, It's just one of these other senses that I tend to use to give me a, a very lively picture of where I am. When Fiona was a toddler, she was diagnosed with a very rare form of childhood eye cancer, which attacks the cells in the retina. It's called retinoblastoma. The only way to treat her case was to remove her eyes. Fiona doesn't use echolocation all the time. It doesn't work very well in crowded or noisy environments. But it's a practical addition to the other strategies she uses for getting around. I don't go for mile-long walks outside by myself. I tend not to do that. But certainly even just around a house, it gives me a a sense of the size of a room. If I go to a, a place I've never been to before, say a friend's house or something, I very rapidly learn, and it's a mixture of memory and echolocation, because the echolocation obviously uh, warns me that the wall is within uh, two feet of me and I can use it to that and air movement to discover where the door is to get out of the, the room and things like that. So. If someone had said to me, do you hear the walls? I would say, no, I feel them. It's, I can feel that wall over there, <laughs> rather than hear it. But in reality, of course, I, I am probably hearing it rather than feeling it. And mm-hmm. certainly when I have a bad cold or if I've got my ears covered, then it's very difficult to use it. You can't use echolocation. There's more and more awareness of echolocation as a mobility aid for visually impaired people. It's an ingenious practical skill. But that's not all. It raises some profound questions. The most pressing of these... What it would be like. What is it like like to be a bat? bat? Fiona knows better than anyone, perhaps. But this is a question that fascinates plenty of others. 
like Jim Simmons, an ecologist from Brown University in Rhode Island. The animals live in worlds that just don't look very much like ours. We'll hear more from him later. And this is David Papineau. From the Department of Philosophy in King's College London. When we start doing this, I'm going to want to ask you questions. Is that all right? Philosophers have a long tradition of asking questions about bats. In 1974, the American philosopher Thomas Nagel wrote a paper featuring a batty thought experiment. The paper was called, What is it like to be a bat? He asked us to imagine somebody who knew all about bat science. So they knew all about the echolocation and the, the high-pitched sound, sound signals and the, the way the bats computed them and how the bat's auditory cortex was developed to do this and all the tricks the bat used. So you knew everything there was to know about bats from a scientific point of view. But then imagining that you knew all that, you've still got a question what it's like to be to be a bat, and you think, well, what's it? it's like kind of hanging upside down and having your eyes closed and hearing lots of... And, but Nagel said, no, no, that's what it would be like for a human to hang out like a bat. But what it's like for them, that doesn't seem to fall out of all the scientific investigation. Nagel's main interest wasn't actually bats. It was more abstract than that. He was interested in whether we'll ever grasp another's experience. It will not help to try to imagine that one has webbing on one's arms, which enables one to fly around at dusk and dawn, catching insects in one's mouth, that one spends the day hanging upside down by one's feet in an attic. Insofar as I can imagine this, which is not very far, it tells me only what it would be like for me to behave as a bat behaves. But I want to know what it is like for a bat to be a bat. And if I try to imagine this, I am restricted to the resources of my own mind. And those resources are inadequate to the task. Nagel was pretty pessimistic. He argued that there are aspects of consciousness that we just can't know about, we can't study. In fact, he thought, even if you knew everything there was to know about bats, you'd be missing something extra. The what-its-likeness of consciousness, the felt nature of consciousness. Uh, it's not just behaviour, there's also these feelings and sensations and visual experience and so on. He meant that this squishy, subjective, what-its-likeness will stay squishy and subjective and can't be studied. And some philosophers are happy with that. There's the brain working away, and then there's something else, another layer, a layer of what it's like to have a brain that works in that way, like a cloud of steam above a working steam engine. But some others say, well, there aren't two layers at all. There's just the brain, and the brain is the feeling of what it's like. Here's one thing that, that, that Nagel is certainly right about, that we don't have bat experiences. I called it my bat sense. <laughs> What's going on in the bat doesn't go on in us. I do the... But that's no argument for thinking that, that there's something going on that's beyond the physical goings-on studied by science. It's just that we don't have the bat brains. We don't have the physical goings-on that are going on in the bat. So the mere fact that, uh, that the bats have certain experiences which we don't is just what you'd expect from a physicalist point of view. So then, by studying the physical underpinnings of bat experiences, bat brains and bat bodies, it should be possible to at least approximate what life is like for a bat, right? Is it like hearing lots of clicks... Is it like having a rather complicated set of noises coming in? 
Or is it like seeing there's a table over there with a certain kind of surface? If I knew a lot more about what went on in bats and thought about how similar that was or different to things that go on in humans, whether then I'd be in a, in a position to work out what it is like to be a bat. Guess what? Plenty of scientists think like this. Which is why Jim Simmons, who studied bats since the 60s, is thinking of writing a book called What It Is Like To Be A Bat. To find out what it's like, Simmons and his team keep a squadron of bats in the dark basement of the biology building at Brown University. Bats are a serious level two biohazard because of rabies, so... How difficult is it to get bats and um, study them? We get a permit from the state to catch bats from people's houses. Jim and his colleague Laura Klepper showed me the flight room. You get the sense they like to surprise their guests here. All here in the bat cage. This is the anti-bat escape screen. <laughs> it's very sophisticated piece, mm -hmm. of, piece of plastic. Welcome to our flight room. This is the flight wow, room. Wow, this looks a bit crazy, guys. <laughs> the flight room is a sort of bat assault course made of black plastic chains several feet long, hanging from the ceiling. The basic idea is okay. that all of these hanging chains are sort of like they're controlled versions of vegetation, like bats fly through trees. And this is an easy way of setting up that something that's complicated that let us set corridors for the bats to fly in and at the same time know where everything is. It just looks a little bit adult. Yes, it does. <laughs> let's, let, 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 let's, let, all that to one side. <laughs> when sound bounces off the chain, it bounces off all the links in the chain, so it makes a really strong collection of echoes, sort of like, like branches of trees would. Here in the flight room, they fly bats by flinging them into the air and listening to them echolocate their way through the chain forest. They hope these sorts of experiments will hint at how the bats get around, a little glimpse at what that area of a bat's experience is like. Now, Jim knows about Thomas Nagel, of course, and his famous paper. Work on what animals' sensory worlds are like has been really burgeoning in the last 50 or 60 years. One of the discoveries that triggered this was the bat sonar. It was one of the early realizations that animals live in worlds that just don't look very much like ours. And what, what, what can it be like? And the point of the philosopher's article was that you can't find out because you can't become the bat. And our approach to it is that we weren't planning to become a bat, but you just do it by trying to figure out what the bat might be seeing by doing experiments on it. Later that day, Jim and I sat in the control room observing a flight experiment take place. A bat called Gwendolyn, actually a male bat but no one checked before he was christened, is flying through the forest of chains next door. We are amid another forest, this time of Kit. There's a grainy screen showing the room. It's a thermal imaging camera. thermal camera. I don't know if you've ever seen some of the TV shows where they are like searching for ghosts. As obviously it's completely dark next door. Most of the bulk in here is recording kit to pick up the bat's echoes in multiple channels from microphones placed all around the flight room. Uh, these are studio devices that let us record multiple channels, in this case 20 21 sound channels plus video if we want. Recording. We watch as the bat speeds through its assault course in seconds, landing on the wall at the far end. As we watch Gwendolyn zip around again, 
a line from Nagel's paper comes back to me. Anyone who has spent some time in an enclosed space with an excited bat knows what it is to encounter a fundamentally alien form of life. Can any of these studies make bats less alien to us? Is echolocation for a bat like vision for a human? Or like speaking and listening? Or what? Do we always have to compare it to something that we can do? Is it at all able to be equated to how we see? Because I mean, it's natural that we would think that. I think so. Yeah, we, one of the, when people very often, when they use sonar systems, they try to build a visual display for the operator, even though it's not visual somehow. And the bats are clearly seeing things. They're seeing what's around them in places. They're not hearing sounds, they're seeing objects. And that's part of what we'd like to do, is build a three-dimensional visual display. And then we could, one of our plans would be to have someone wear a little helmet with sound generators, yes, so that the person can maneuver around in the flight room using pictures of the chains that were computed from the sounds. And if it works, it'll probably become classified. <laughs> <laughs> Turning the sounds into pictures butts straight up against Nagel's problem. This is what it's like for a human to be a bat. So what if Jim Simmons is wrong and studying bats can't tell us what it's like for a bat to be a bat? What else could get us closer? Let's return to our favourite question asker, David Papineau. Well, I wonder. So, but, but now you've been finding out lots about what bats do and what humans do when they echolocate, and it seems to me that if one knew enough about that, one might, or might not, be in a reasonable position to figure out what it's like to be a bat, so... I think we might need Fiona back for this. Fiona and I arranged to meet at Durham University, along with Durham neuroscientist Laura Tala. I've come to ask Fiona my questions about bats, and Laura's thought about this a lot too. She studies humans who can echolocate. In cases where uh, input through the eyes is lost, or through the retina, um, it's a very common finding, actually, that um, those parts that are termed visual in the brain, that they actually uh, respond to other sensory inputs or input from other sensory modalities such as touch, hearing, um, smell. This is a property that neuroscientists call plasticity. People say, oh, you know, you've lost your sight, you must have your other senses so much more uh, acute. They're not. I think it's more that one processes the information coming in more accurately uh, than someone, or you have to process it more accurately than someone who's got sight to rely on. If the brain isn't getting visual information, or if it's never had any at all, it will reuse visual areas to serve other functions. It's not clear whether activity in the visual cortex means you're always seeing something. It could just be the brain being resourceful and drafting in visual areas to process information about sound. But whatever's happening, it can happen quite quickly, on the order of days as Laura found when she began to teach sighted volunteers to echolocate. Uh, one of the tricky bits is to first get people to make the right or, or, or good sonar emission. And there are huge variations to the degree that people are able to make good or proper mouth clicks. Many people start with a very low-pitched click, which is 
not not as useful. Um, it's not very crisp, and there's quite some variation from click to click. One of the clicks that I make is like this one. It's quite in the back. It's not a great one. It's not a super click. So the other one is in, it also phenomenal. It's more in the front. It's a bit softer, but it's very bright. So that click that I make is also is not so great. If if it get to this level, though, it's not so bad. So it's just the tip of your tongue on the front of the roof of your mouth. Yes. <laughs> it's like you're having a little conversation. <laughs> Enough of the practice session. Does Laura think that any of her research on human echolocation will hint at what it's like to be a bat? I think it might. And the reason it might is because um, if we draw from the um, brain activity, say, then we might expect that echolocation in certain aspects might resemble or have a, a component of spatial visual experience um, that might resemble what you know, we, we would consider, yeah, vision or visual. So that's that's why I think um, that that working with people in that regard can be useful to tell us what is a human bat or a human echolocator, what's the experience like. Not sure how it would apply to uh, the bat animal. But Laura does have some hints that seeing and echolocating aren't that different after all, that our experience probably isn't that unlike a bat's. We did one study with, um, these were again cited undergraduate students, so we measured the vividness of the visual imagery um, and then correlated this with echolocation ability and we found that there's a positive correlation. Um, so which might suggest that there's a common component to both of these, these aspects of the experience. Now that's very interesting because I think one of the things I'm very conscious of, um, I have a very good spatial imagination and also very good, I don't know, if I say visual imagination that sounds weird, but I honestly can imagine, my husband and I go to a lot of art exhibitions and so forth like that, and he will describe the a picture to me, and I really can imagine what it's like, maybe my imagining is not what the picture actually is like, but certainly things like concepts of buildings and things like this where one has to imagine a volumetric space or something like that. I, I, I am able to do that really quite easily and successfully. Where that information comes from that your minds are users, that's what, what's the curious part. <laughs> yes. Fiona's mind's eye doesn't rely on vision, of course, but that doesn't mean it's not full of colour. My mother was a, um, a very artistic person. She worked for Vogue before she got married, and her world was extraordinarily colourful, and um, colour meant a great deal to her, and she had no intention of her daughter growing up without being very conscious of colour. And so I was, I was never treated as if I wouldn't be interested in seeing what they saw. And maybe she really does see what they saw in her mind's eye. New techniques in neuroscience could help build a more accurate picture of what other minds see. A method called brain decoding uses a computer that learns how someone's brain will respond to a picture or sound. Then, when the person looks at a different picture or hears a different sound, based on only their brain activity, the computer can predict what someone is seeing or hearing. The beauty of this is that scientists don't have to rely on a subjective report of what someone says they're seeing. 
difficult to describe in detail. So say you had a sighted person and a blind person to look at or echolocate an object. What we can do is we can potentially compare the um, activity patterns in the brains of these two people. If we were able to do this, would this then tell us that the blind echolocator actually in this case has a similar experience as the sighted person? Yeah, would you be able to use that technique to essentially paint a picture of what their world looked like to them? Yes. No one's done that study yet, so I guess we still don't know what it's like to be anyone but ourselves. And something tells me that Nagel might tell me I've missed the point. Jim Simmons, on the other hand, following a well-known philosophical strategy, just reframed the question. We don't know what it is to be a bat, but we might be able to know what it's like. The difference really is that. I, I doubt very much if philosophers telling us you can't do something is the right way to approach anything. Just like scientists telling you you can definitely do something, that's also the not way to, right way to approach it. 